This week's episode of The Weeds is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code WEEDS at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. This week's episode of The Weeds is also brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds to take advantage of free streaming of, of course, the fundamentals of photography. The following podcast contains explicit language. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just so excited by the idea that there's both an old and new literature. We're going to hear about the both. Hello. Welcome to the latest episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. With me as usual are my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Hello. Hi. We're digging out from the snow here in Washington, sort of, and it's turning like gross and black everywhere on the street. We're a little stir crazy. Anything yes. going to happen here? Ready to talk about public policy. I feel really good. I feel terrible. I feel stir crazy. I'm like very focused for this discussion. I've done a lot of reading for this discussion. Great. That's great. Um, you know, I think we wanted to start by talking about uh, a subject that a few people have suggested over the course of the months and that I think is in some ways the sort of central axis of dispute in American politics today. And it's the idea of making wealthy people pay higher tax rates, which is appealing to some because wealthy people have a lot of money and there aren't that many of them. So it seems like a good way to get money to pay for things. But on the other hand, there's a very strong feeling from people in the conservative movement that high taxes on the wealthy are very detrimental to economic growth. I mean, there's disagreement about lots of things in politics, but this is a disagreement about one thing that serves to sort of block possible agreement on all kinds of other things. Because Democrats, anytime they sort of have an idea about something, they want to pay for it by making the wealthy pay higher taxes. And Republicans don't want to do that because they say it's incredibly damaging to the economy's long-term prospects. And so it seems oftentimes we sort of can't do anything. And conversely, when Republicans, which has not, I think, so much been, <laughs> has not been so present since 2010, but when Republicans want to cut the government and want to cut the deficit by large amounts. They don't want to do it through any taxes at all. And Democrats might agree with the deficit reduction in theory, but will not allow an agreement that doesn't include tax increases on, on richer Americans. So it ends up blocking both parties' agendas simultaneously. And also when Republicans cut programs, it's often explicitly or implicitly in order to finance these kind of tax cuts. Right. For Democrats, if you don't believe that tax cuts on the wealthy are going to spur economic growth, then these kind of program cuts look very uncompelling, even if the program itself doesn't look that great. If it's not like, well, average people are going to get a ton of money back in taxes, but just a handful of CEOs are, then it's right. like almost anything clears that bar. <laughs> um, so, so the question of is this actually important for the overall economy is like really central to shaping how people think about these things. And it would be great if you could Google around for 10 minutes and find like a clear expert, you know, like on climate change, right? I mean, it's a very contentious political issue, but in the sort of expert world, it's like really, really not contentious. Right. And, and that's not the case on taxes. No. So we we were circulating a bunch of weeds homework to do this. And one of the things I thought was really it was interesting to read, but it's also very amusing to read, was the Tax Foundation is a conservative think tank. They're primarily a think tank dedicated to making the case for lower taxes. 
and they did a big literature review of various academic papers on taxes. And they read all these papers and they summarized all these papers. And you can read it. They have it online. It's a very interesting document. And they say, well, look, if you look at this fairly, basically every paper says raising taxes harms growth. Then the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities did a second, which is a left, which is a I'm sorry, yeah, a left leaning sort of budget oriented think tank, which is much more friendly to tax increases. Re-reviewed that same set of studies and argued that in fact the Tax Foundation had omitted crucial conclusions and then also omitted a bunch of other studies, which would have complicated their case. And I did want to quote one part of the CBPP review because I actually thought this is where I come down on taxes. They wrote, the proper answer to a question as broad as whether tax increases are positive or negative for growth is, wait for it, it depends. <laughs> and, and I really think that's right because one thing we do in, in Washington a lot is look at the tax issue on its own. So we'll ask this question, right, are taxes good or bad? But, but the point CBPP and the point, frankly, a lot of academics will make when you talk to them or look at their research is, okay, how did you raise taxes? Who did you raise them on? What did you spend the money on and what did the central bank do in response to all that? And depending on how you answer those questions, a tax increase can be good for growth or it can be bad for growth. So you can, you can increase taxes in an efficient way. Let's say you increase taxes by putting down 1% value-added tax and you use that tax to fund badly needed investments in education and infrastructure. That is probably going to be really good for growth, and there's a fair amount of research to suggest that. On the other hand, if you do a very narrow tax increase in a way that is very complicated and will lead to a lot of tax aversion, and you spend that money on something that doesn't do your economy really any good, a government program that ends up being very wasteful, then you probably hurt your economy. And this is something that we don't really have a good way to talk about because we often talk about taxes on their own. So for instance, if you look at the Republican tax plans right now, they have these huge tax cut plans, but they do not say how they will pay for them. And they don't even really say what they'll do with the money. So to say like anything about what these tax plans will do is completely impossible. Right. I mean, one of the central questions in how you come down on this is like, who do you think can do better at spending this money? Should you leave it with rich people and like maybe they'll buy yachts and they'll stimulate the yacht economy and then you'll create jobs or like the yacht economy, <laughs> the big yacht economy, <laughs> or will they buy their yacht abroad? And like, actually, that doesn't really help the U.S. economy. And it would be better going into Medicaid, which will help people get healthier. And then it'll right. stimulate the U.S. yacht economy better. But I think like that's one of the fundamental questions that you're getting at here. And I think that kind of goes back to the quote Ezra is pulling from the CB, sorry, I always mix up their CBPP. I always mix up their acronym. How can you not know the Center on because Budget it, and Policy Sometimes I'm like CPC. Anyways, it, it goes back to that kind of like, it depends both on what the investment is, who you think can spend better. And, and one of the things I found really interesting in going through this literature, it's really hard to measure tax increases in their effect. There's this big Romer and Romer study that tries to look at different tax. <laughs> I, I really, so David Romer and Christina Romer. Yes, they're married. Vice versa, but I just always like saying the Romer and Romer The study. Romer and Romer study. <laughs> Christina Romer is the first author on yes. that, so I want to give her appropriate yeah, yeah. She credit. Should be, she should be first. On that. Also former Council of Economic Advisor yes. chairwoman. So her and her husband, also an economist, do this study where they try and like differentiate between tax increases that were done to um, normalize the economy. Like, the, like we see we're going into this recession. We want to prevent that. And then ones that just happen for other reasons. And you realize there's like a lot of subjectivity and like even measuring 
well, when does a tax increase start? I was thinking about a cigarette tax, for example. Like, let's say we implement a cigarette tax and we start measuring it on January 1st when the cigarette tax starts. Well, that's not quite right because probably people read about the cigarette tax and they stopped buying cigarettes. It's just really hard to measure mm-hmm. the effect of taxes, which I think is one of the reasons you end up in this really difficult situation of trying to understand how they affect growth. We don't even really know the right metric to measure the effect of tax increases on the economy in the first place. Well, the Roman Romer paper has ideologically interesting conclusion. And it supports just saying from the start that these are relatively liberal researchers. And Christina Romer has worked in partisan politics, uh, briefly at least. And they is find... It, is it actually the case? Uh, sorry, point of clarification, because I'm not sure. It, it, I've never been sure how to describe it. If you join an administration, is that working in partisan politics? I think at that I'd level. say yes. Really? Because I'd say working on a campaign is working in partisan politics. No, I think but if you join like the Obama... Duty, duty, it, like, no. did, was Robert Gates involved in partisan politics for being Obama's defense secretary? I don't think he was, but I think that's a little bit different. I mean, I think the work that the Council of Economic Advisors does, what we're having this discussion uh-huh. about, is very sharply partisan in a way that managing the Pentagon That's actually, that, that's a fair isn't. point. She did, like, studies designed to bolster Obama's stimulus agenda. You're, you're, like the, you're, you've convinced um, me. I, I withdraw my objection. So, so at any rate, <laughs> we could continue podcasting. They Podcast show, on. You, you could give a very sort of conservative gloss to what this paper says, which is that there are big economic effects of tax cuts, that they boost growth a lot, and that tax hikes reduce growth. And then if you dive deeper, though, they are throwing out of the sample tax increases that were designed to finance new programs, Mm -hmm. which is sort of like the classic left-wing thing you would do, is say, here's a new program, here's a new tax, because they're interested in fiscal stimulus as an issue. So they're looking at Well, did they say the way Ronald Reagan did in 1981, we're just going to cut taxes to get the economy moving? Or are they going to say, as Bill Clinton did in 1993, we need to raise taxes to reduce the deficit and and get the economy moving? And so they're really finding here is that fiscal stimulus done through the tax code is highly effective. The way we normally manage the economy now is by letting the Fed do interest rates up or down. But Before the 1970s, it was more common to actually see the president say things like, well, we need a tax cut to boost short-term growth, or we need higher taxes to control inflation. And they're finding primarily that that stuff had big effects. Mm -hmm. There may be bad reasons to try to do it that way, because the process of legislation drafting and getting passed by Congress tends to be pretty slow compared to the the motions of the economy. But they're finding that it, it worked sort of, quote unquote, right? The economy moved in the intended direction, which is really sort of neither here nor there in terms of the arguments that that we have about politics. But it's still suggestive that in general, something like a, quote unquote, irresponsible Republican tax cut to just come in, cut taxes a lot, not necessarily offset it, not really care, would in fact increase economic growth. Although then you have to ask questions about would the Fed offset it? Would something terrible wind up being cut sort of down the road? But it's an interesting case of them taking up what's sort of like an unfashionable, old-timey left-wing idea, but that corresponds more closely to what Republicans tend to actually propose. Although the, the really interesting thing about this is that they find that the growth boost happens when the taxes actually go down, 
rather than when the tax cut is like announced or passed, which suggests that it's happening through the demand response. People actually have the money. And so then things happen rather than you're more likely to hear from conservatives about incentives. If taxes are low, then, you know, you work harder, you save, things like that. And the simple foreknowledge that the president just signed a new law ought to be enough to like alter companies' investment behavior. Presumably, CEOs are capable of reading the newspaper right. and are not like taken by surprise. Holy shit, taxes are lower. <laughs> you know? Although, who knows? So I've now read a lot of these papers for my sins. And one of my big conclusions reading a bunch of them is that within reasonably normal parameters, it's just not that important. Not that it isn't important, but just... We can get very monomaniacal in D.C. because taxes are such a central part of the toolkit about trying to almost imagine. I think if you listen to particularly a lot of Republican rhetoric, sometimes it will seem as if the American economy is the outcome of, a, of like this single input variable and the input variable is, is marginal tax rates. Something that I've kind of become convinced of is that, you know, within sort of reasonable parameters, this stuff matters. But it is so swamped by other effects. What did you spend the money on? What was going on in the economy at that time? You know, were you in a period where you had a lot of demand or very little demand? Were you in a period where you had a lot of savings or very little savings? That to some degree, we, we overrate the, the taxes question. And I would actually draw an analogy here a little bit to the minimum wage, where that also has, a, similar to taxes, a very complex literature behind it. And you have some very good studies showing very little effect. You have some some also pretty good studies showing some effect. And that, you know, right now my my view on the minimum wage is that, you know, you could easily raise it to $10, maybe even $11 or $12 without much negative effect. When you start getting up to $15 or higher than $15, I think we are in territory that's a little bit uncharted and I would worry. And taxes, I think, are, are pretty similar to that. I think that when you're talking about some of the tax increases, you know, that maybe Hillary Clinton or Obama are talking about, I think you're looking at taxation levels that are just not going to be that different for the economy one way or the other. Bernie Sanders is looking at a very, very, very different kind of tax equilibrium. And similarly, every Republican is looking at a very different tax equilibrium. And so there, if we were to go so sharply up or so sharply down in terms of either increasing taxes or cutting taxes and either blowing up the deficit or, or cutting programs, I think we're really in territory where we don't actually know how to think about it. Because one thing I think you see in a lot of the tax literature is that economies don't very frequently make huge tax changes all at once. They will make big tax reforms, as we did in 1986, but in terms of very, very sharply increasing the tax burden up 5 percentage points of GDP or down 5 percentage points of GDP, you don't really see that. And so, and when it that, happens, it's usually because there's a war. Yeah, and so that it gets just, I think, very – I don't think we know too much about huge changes, but I just think you look at this literature and, and the answer is you should probably be smart and prudent about small changes, but you shouldn't. They're not the be-all and end-all of, of a, economic politics. That's a boring takeaway that taxes will kill the economy. Or save it, right? Or save the economy. Um, I, I don't think that – I'm actually not convinced that we can raise taxes a bunch. Something I think is a real problem for, for Democrats. I think if you read this literature, something you do get into a lot is that there is a real efficiency argument for broader-based 
tax increases that the Democrats are comfortable with, that it would oftentimes make a lot more sense to do something like a value-added tax or something that hit a lot more people, even if in a smaller way, in order to finance highly progressive spending. But Democrats want to hit only a very small group of rich people in order to finance their spending. And that will magnify the cost of the taxes on those people. So then it becomes this question of, well, how important do you think the productivity and incentives of really rich people are to the economy? And also, what do you think those incentives are, right? I think you can make an argument that, you know, on the one hand, the people who are at that level in the economy, they're often working because they're workaholics, because they care a lot about status, because they love their jobs. And it's not quite the same as somebody doing a job they hate for minimum wage. Right. And when I thought about those people, I also thought they're getting a lot of different benefits. Salary is probably not the only thing that they are working for. There are stock options and maybe like at the upper echelons, like I hear there's jets or things like that. But there's like a (laughs) lot of different benefits. There's like good benefit packages. And I think that's another reason why you end up seeing like taxes aren't the be-all, end-all, because salary is not the be-all. No, wait, I, I want to put I... some pressure on okay. this, this common yeah. sense consensus you guys are forging. <laughs> what's, what's interesting about that is I think that seems like a reasonable reaction to the range of literature out here. And there's a certain meta-rational prudence in sort of the Obama-Hillary Clinton, let's just propose small changes. But you very rarely find a specific research agenda that supports that conclusion, you tend to see a very, very polarized literature where you either have models or empirical bases in which high marginal tax rates have a strong disincentive effect on people to develop the kinds of skills and make the kinds of investments that lead to high incomes and a big long-term decline, and it strongly supports these Republican-style initiatives. And then you have this counter-literature that Thomas Piketty is the sort of most famous person in, but his colleague uh, Emmanuel Say is, is part of this. Paul Krugman has endorsed this literature. Peter Diamond not contributed to it. In this. Peter Diamond, yeah. yeah, which says that the optimal top marginal tax rate is in the 70 to 80 percent range, which is where Sanders' campaign... I, I mean, Do you want we, to define optimal real quick, though, because I think that's important, sure, yeah. what they mean by that. So so what they mean basically is that that gets you uh, the most revenue that you can, that obviously the sort of the higher the tax rate, the more incentive people have just not be paying the taxes at all, sort of Laffer curve type phenomenon. But they say that the, the bend point for that is at a very, very, very high level. And then you have this even further literature, which is very undeveloped, but that Glenn Weil and a couple co-authors have an interesting paper on. In which he says that the big problem with the Reagan tax cuts is precisely that that they sort of worked in a Laffer curve type way, that the old marginal tax rates that were at but like 90 percent were better because at that level, smart people didn't necessarily bother to go be lawyers or to go be Wall Street traders, that they were more likely to seek prestige or just a pleasant lifestyle by doing things like teaching and scientific research and that those contribute more to the overall sort of growth of the economy. And so I think it's like if you're in the hot chair, you know, and you got to like make the tough policy calls, it seems really compelling to just kind of split the difference between these two radically different theories. And I think that may be the smart way to proceed in life. But it does seem to be true that the sort of most rigorous, most advanced thinking about this pushes you toward either these flat tax type schemes or else to incredibly high rates on on high earning people. Politically, fortunately, taxes are a question of numbers and you really can just split the difference and and walk away. But if you're sort of interested in the pursuit of truth, it's, it's really 
challenging to like <laughs> know who's right. Well, Other this gets at one thing I was thinking about reading a lot of the literature is like this bigger question about like, well, what's your goal? Is your goal GDP output? Like, is that right. your metric? You know, there's a in our weeds homework that Matt gave us, there's um, an Ed Prescott paper from the Minneapolis Fed looking at how Americans work more than French people and other Europeans and that and he basically traces it to that Europeans have higher tax rates and basically uses this as a case against higher tax rates. One of the things I thought through reading that paper, like, well, is GDP growth our goal? Or are French people perfectly fine and happy with their big social support system and their, like, very long summer vacations and, you know, getting along in that sort of way is, like, another thing you have to think about with tax rates is, like, well, what are you aiming towards? Is, like, GDP growth the thing you want? Or are there, like, other things that are your metrics yeah, and, for success? And two things that I think are actually worth bringing into here, because they, they relate in interesting orthogonal ways. One is that we are talking primarily, and I think we should we should state this maybe clearly, we are talking here about taxes as a fiscal tool, more or less, like as a, as a way to pay for things, right. right? As a way to pay for your government. There is also a class of taxes. Cigarette taxes are a version of this, where fundamentally what they're trying to do is change behavior. Right now, we do fund a lot of things through taxing cigarettes, but I think on some level, a lot of the people who created those taxes would be perfectly happy if they got no money at all from that tax because nobody smoked a cigarette ever again. Or another version of this is people talk about carbon taxes a lot. We, we don't have one in the economy, but one way to deal with climate change would be to tax carbon. And so the, the price of goods that include high levels of, of greenhouse gas emissions would go up. And here again, the point of the tax, the, the tax probably will raise a lot of revenue, but the point of the tax isn't to raise revenue. And the idea is that in the long run, yeah. it would decline. You, you want it to decline, which is one reason you've heard sometimes Democrats talk about swapping out payroll taxes for carbon taxes, which I've always thought is an odd idea because if the carbon tax works, eventually, you know, Medicare and Social Security would be more and more underfunded. So that's, I think, one thing here that is just worth keeping in mind. Some taxes are, are there not to help the economy. They're there to do very, very specific things. Another thing I think that is worth keeping in mind, and this really deals with the first group of thinking you were talking about, the question of high marginal tax rates. One reason marginal tax rates are higher than they need to be even to support current levels of revenue is we have a lot of holes in the tax system. And politicians will often talk about this as like loopholes and, you know, and, and expenditures and whatever. And when you hear them say that, everybody's like, oh, I hate loopholes and I don't like, you know, people being able to loophole out of taxes. But when you get into it, this is a mortgage interest tax deduction. This is the employer health care tax exclusion. This is the deductibility of debt for corporations. I mean, there, there are reasons we do these things. I actually don't like a lot of these, but there are definitely cases for them and there are reasons we do them. And one thing there's a very deep incoherence on in our political system is whether cutting a tax expenditure, closing the mortgage interest deduction, is a tax increase or a spending cut. And this is something that actually will split the Republican coalition pretty sharply. So I've talked with a lot of Republican economists who will tell me, Glenn Hubbard and others, people who've served at pretty high levels in Republican administrations, that, yeah, economically, cutting a tax expenditure is like a spending cut, not like a tax increase. It actually can lower marginal rates. In a Republican budget authored by Paul Ryan, it said that these tax expenditures are another form of government spending. But Grover Norquist, who is the head of Americans for Tax Reform and is a guy behind the pledge, the anti-tax pledge that most Republican politicians have signed, he says cutting a tax expenditure is like raising taxes. And so Republicans do not agree. One thing that Democrats are willing to do is say that 
cutting a tax expenditure is akin to raising taxes. And Republicans could say it's a spending cut, and everybody could agree there. And that would be a way to, to unlock things. And the Obama administration tried that, and it didn't actually get anywhere. Because so much as economically, that seems to split the difference between between the, the, the arguments you're making or the, the two ways of thinking about taxes. In practice, politically, Republicans want to use that money to cut taxes, and Democrats want to use it to, to fund the government. Well, this is also because – So that's why a lot of these arguments just actually come down to that question of what are you really trying to do here? Right. Well, in the anti-tax coalition, there's two different things driving people. One is a question about incentives, and one is just a question about money. And that's like why you have this this kind of dissonance, right? So like one – benefit we sort of get through work, but also through the, through the tax code, is that I'm able to pay for a certain amount of my baby's childcare expenses with untaxed money through a, one of these like special savings accounts, right? And so that's a benefit that is valuable to me. I pocket several hundred extra dollars a year than I would if we got rid of that loophole. So, you know, I like that. If you took that away, I would be sad in the same sense that if you did anything to take a few hundred dollars away from me, I would be sad. But it has no impact on my work incentives because the amount of money is so low. It's meaningful, but it is less than the full cost of paying for childcare. So it's not like its presence or absence is actually contributing to the decision of whether I should work or not, right? So in the sort of academic case against taxes, getting rid of that is fine because it doesn't change my incentives. And if you could get rid of that and even very, very slightly reduce marginal rates, it would be great because I would have more incentive to work than ever. On the one hand, I would have less money, so I might need to go right. out and get more money. But on the other hand, my marginal rates would be lower, so it would be even better for me to work. And that money, money would be worth more to it, you. Exactly. Right. So, so that's like win-win. But I think in a normal common sense universe, the thing that people don't like about taxes is that they wish they had more money. So, you know, this kind of like complicated argument about marginal rates and the fact that you having less money can be economically beneficial because it's like the government is like a taskmaster. I, I, I think we should pause on, on yeah. this point for me because I think it's complicated and it's just worth noting. One of the arguments you find in tax literature is this argument between different kinds of responses to, to tax increases, right? Mm -hmm. One response to a tax increase, if taxes go from 20% to 50% on my income, on the one hand, maybe I don't work anymore because all of a sudden, instead of getting paid $80,000, I get paid $50,000 and that would make me really sad. More than that, I might just decide it's not worth working this hard for 50000 rather than 80000 But another version of that and the other argument made in the literature is it because it takes money away from me, now I have to work harder to make more money. Right. So there's a way in which a tax increase has simultaneously an effect that incentivizes more work and less work. Right. And it probably does this to different people and in different ways. But it's a real argument in the literature and probably depending on how you structure a tax increase. People work for money and just how you understand that sentence can really change how you think about taxes. Right. And an argument that probably works differently at different levels. Exactly, like if you yeah. think of someone who, you know, let's say is at the minimum wage and like needs a certain amount of money to pay rent, it's easy in theory, at least for me, to see that person picking up extra shifts. But then right. you, I don't know, think about someone mid-level who has, who wants to spend more time with their kids. Yeah. Let me give one example I think that's to your point. Yeah. Greg Mankey, who's a, a conservative-leaning economist, once wrote a piece about how, you know, if you stack up all the marginal tax rates on him and, you know, and, and particularly if you increase to more, 
then like for him to go give a speech is like worth very, very, very little money. So why would he do that? And then people are like, oh, well, I don't care if Greg Mankey gives speeches. But I think that's to your point that like for people who have more money and maybe are doing a little bit of extra work, you know, that they didn't want to be doing in the first place, but wanted to make the money that can really disincentivize their work. But there's an interesting point here, right? Because you're talking about the impact of a marginal tax rate on people's incentives at the margin. And so an important question there is, what is your marginal wage, right? And for certain kinds of people, for famous academics, and also for journalists, we have meaningful marginal wages, right? We Do you want to define what a marginal sure, wage is? Sure, which is to say, if people in our line of work wanted to hustle a little harder, we could get more freelance assignments or more, you know, random speaking gigs, things like that. People in our line of work often will turn down certain potential money making things on the grounds that it's too much hassle and they're offering you like really little money to bother flying to California for. And so these kind of tax things you could really sort of imagine being a being a factor. Then at the other end of this sort of eliteness scale, low wage service sector workers oftentimes have a meaningful marginal wage. They could pick up extra shifts, but they might not want to. It's a trade-off. But there's a sort of broad middle ground of sort of like normal people, including some very elite people, right? Tim Cook cannot decide that he wants to cut back his hours and accept a slightly lower salary as CEO of Apple, right? The job is just the job. He has to do the job or he can retire, but he can't futz it up and down. Right. And he can't, I mean, maybe he could do some freelance writing for Fortune or something, but, <laughs> but it's ridiculous to think of him doing that, right? And so that's the case for a, a lot of people in truly elite occupation. I just want to note that, that if Tim Cook is feeling a little strapped, we would welcome a first person from him on, yeah, on look, what it's like we, to be, like, I'm the head of Apple and... <laughs> he, he, could, he could come on the weeds, we'd scrounge some money together. I mean, you know, there's a I'm lot a, of Yeah, a lot of stuff I'd be interested here. in there. Uh, but, you know, this is the way it is for for lots of normal people. I mean, on the one hand, CEOs, but also just salaried workers. They're just like, you have a job to do. you sort of where you are. Now, you can get a raise. You can get a different job. But you can't decide to do two more hours of work a week and get a little bit more money, which is to say, in a, in a technical sense, people like that have a, a marginal wage of zero, in which case it doesn't matter what, what their marginal tax is. Mm -hmm. But it's like two populations that we care about a lot in the policy world, which is to say poor people and people who write about policy <laughs> <laughs> both have meaningful marginal wages. So I think this may get like more attention than it really deserves if you think about it in like a population average sense. Although you never know. I mean, what I have never seen is like a really solid statistical headcount of how many people actually have the the option of working right, a little bit yeah. more. Right. Well, is that true money? though? Because like I think like when I think like middle class, like I think of like teachers, for example, who can do tutoring on the side. Like if they're feeling strapped, like there's a marginal wage there. For teachers, like healthcare sector, it's a little harder to see something that's aligned with them. But maybe picking up odd jobs here and there is like a thing they. Well, could sure. I mean, do. you could do something. Almost everyone could do something. Everybody weird. can drive an Uber. Yes. Sure, like, yes. To, to a first approximation. Right. But I mean, just in terms of Not a children. real world. Not children, right. Like, I was just talking to a guy yesterday who he teaches second grade. He just does his job. He can't just teach three days less a year if he wants to not do it. Now, you know, you, you can come up with something. But in terms of would you expect a small change to have even a small effect, you would say with him, no. 
but you might really say yes for someone who works at Starbucks and does a certain number of shifts a week. You know, a slight change in their in their taxes, whether through EITC, you know, mm -hmm. plussing it up or taking it away, you could really shift your calculation. And you can really, you know, run this in a bunch of different ways. I think one interesting factor in here is what do you think is going to happen with the so-called gig economy? If you are someone who believes it is going to become much, much, much more common for people to be continuously picking up a couple Uber shifts here or Instacart or whatever it might be, right, this kind of on-demand work that's getting a lot easier for people to schedule, then all of a sudden a lot more people have a marginal wage that is meaningful and, and you need to worry about this more. I think you're very much right about where this has been traditionally, but I do think there's an interesting question of where it'll be in 20 years. One other point I want to make is, and this speaks to the very, very top level. And, and one thing I think is worth saying that we're often talking up here about the very, very, very rich, right? The majority of arguments we have about taxes in this country right now, at least under a Democratic president, are about should we raise taxes on the top 1% roughly, or maybe the top 3%. And to go a little more anecdotal, you brought up Tim Cook here. And there's been a piece I've always wanted to write about Steve Jobs and taxes. And something that he did, which is really interesting, when he comes back to Apple, he asks for a dollar a year, right? He basically makes no money off of being Apple's CEO, even as he's turning the company around in this really spectacular fashion. And this dollar a year thing goes on for a long time, for years. And then eventually the board, which has been bugging him for years now to take a salary. An important nuance here is yeah. that Steve Jobs, at the time he came back to Apple, was rich because of the Disney stock he owned right. from having founded Pixar, but had already sold all of the Apple stock that he had had from having founded Apple. So it was a weird situation. M Mark Zuckerberg takes a dollar a year salary, but he also owns Facebook. Right. <laughs> Steve Jobs at that time did not own yeah, Apple. Yeah, sorry, I should have, I should have is, made that Which clear. is what so then. Eventually, the, the, the board of directors prevails on him to take a salary, and he comes back with a request that is unbelievable to them, right? It is just one of the most lavish salary requests that anybody had ever seen before. And they were sort of, you know, how can you go from, from this to that? Like, why, if you're willing to take a dollar a year, are you demanding now a salary that is so much beyond many of your peers? And his basic answer was that status, right? I mean, not in so many words, but that a lot of what is going on in very high level executive compensation has to do with not how much money do you need or how much money is it worth it for you to do your work, but how does the amount of money you're making make you feel vis-a-vis -vis your peers? Because people really care. There's an old line about the real definition of being rich is do you make more money than your brother-in-law? And for CEOs, there's very much that feeling. And, you know, something that I thought of when I was reading this was there's a story about George Washington when he is a soldier for the British Army, if I'm remembering this story right. It's in, it's in Cherno's biography. And they're paying him kind of a pittance to lead, you know, a certain number of soldiers in, in one of the very early wars before independence. And he is really offended by how much they're paying him. And he basically writes to them and he says, listen, please either pay me a lot or let me do this as a volunteer, but don't insult me with this amount of money that is in between. And I think it's something that we really do underplay at high levels of income is how much money becomes a kind of status competition, how much what you're really doing with money is you're using it as a measure of worth, not a storehouse of value. 
And there is research, and, and I'm forgetting who did it, Matt, you may remember, but about ways in which one one factor behind some of the rising executive compensation is that back when you had these very, very, very high top marginal tax rates, when you know making more than a couple million dollars a year would mean you're getting taxed at 90 percent, getting really lavish executive compensation just kind of didn't matter to you that much because nobody else could get it either. So everybody's bargaining power was constrained. When those top marginal tax rates go down, all of a sudden it becomes very worthwhile for CEOs to begin fighting to get more compensation. And then they all have to do it, even if they don't care about the money that much, because otherwise it's kind of insulting. It's insulting to be the CEO of X company that you think that is doing well and make less than the CEO of your competing company, because that is a signal to the market that you're not worth as much as they are. Yeah, so the, the high level sort of research on this is that you can see that CEO compensation norms vary by industry and they also vary by country. Enormously, so that media company CEOs are systematically paid more than CEOs in other kinds of industries. As, Sweet, as if they're like, <laughs> um, happy to hear that. Yeah, well, it's it's exactly um, you know <laughs> as if it's just a, a localized norm. And also, uh, American CEOs are paid more than CEOs in other English-speaking countries, and English-speaking countries are paid more than CEOs in Europe, and European CEOs are paid more than Japanese CEOs. So the idea here is that a Japanese CEO is unlikely to spend a lot of time hanging out with American CEOs and feeling bad about himself. He hangs out in Japan with other Japanese people watching Japanese language media and is like, yeah, <laughs> I get I get like a CEO level salary. Uh, this came up in a really concrete way in the 90s. Uh, Daimler-Benz bought Chrysler briefly and they merged. And so then mergers are always really complicated because you have to merge competing salary schedules. And the CEO of the whole company was like a German guy and he had bought this American <laughs> company. And there were like tons of people at Chrysler who were making more money than he was. <laughs> so it was going to be a crisis because were they going to cut the salaries of all the American executives? Were they going to raise the salaries of all the German executives? Like what were the German unions going to say if it was like, well, we're all giving ourselves a giant raise because we just bought an American company <laughs> full of overpaid executives. <laughs> and it, it tore the company apart. And the whole merger was like a complete disaster. And it's because- Was it actually because of that? Oh, it was it one apart. of several huh. things that, I mean, they just kept fighting the American union, the German union, the American executives, the German executives. They like could not focus on building cars because <laughs> people get really insulted, right? I mean, it's just the economy is in part about money, but it's in part about human cooperation and money is meant to facilitate that cooperation, but it can become a real sort of blocking point when cultural norms collide with each other in a, in a weird kind of way. Well, one, um, one question this raises for me is like looking at the productivity of these different CEOs. And maybe you guys know some studies on this, but like are we're paying American CEOs a lot, presumably because they can earn a lot more with our tax rates. But are they like are they more productive? My hunch is no, based on absolutely no research that <laughs> that when you think of people who are rising to the top, like they I know but, of a bit of research on it and, and I've not reviewed it in a while, so it's a little hazy. One thing I'll say that's just funny, in one of the papers that I, I read before this, which it, it was the Emmanuel size paper, they actually say one problem in their paper is that it's really hard to know how productive top right. one percenters are because like you just it, it's not as clear. Um, a lot more has to do with like, do you have buddies on the compensation committee? Um, but I have seen research and in, in, and it does what I think the research shows is that the value of having a really good CEO, what that will mean to the company is really profound. 
So the the best CEOs, even though they're paid a tremendous amount, are potentially actually even underpaid still. Relative to their productivity, if you replace them with someone worse, I, I think there's also a question of values and other things. So I'm not trying to get into that. But I think the, the really hard thing and, and my sense of, again, reading some research a while ago, you have a median that's been pushed up by norms in industries. So a lot of CEOs are probably way overpaid and their parachutes are too big and whatever else. But the reason it happens is it, and, and the reason compensation committees will do this is that in order to get the best people, which you don't always know if you're getting, it's actually worth a ton. It could be the uh, difference between your your, your the, company the, failing. The numbers are so succeeding. big, right? So like, Apple's worth five hundred sixty billion dollars. So if replacing Tim Cook with someone better would increase the value of the company by zero point five percent, it would be worth paying a billion dollars, <laughs> right? There's a question of like, how would you know, right? right? But I mean, in a very strict pencil it out. It's like not like you can totally get by with the second best genius bar guy. But like if you could know who the best CEO was, you would have a strong economic incentive to pay a lot but, of money. For but it. and I think this is in a way the the argument for a higher top marginal tax rate schedule, right? So so just to, to be really clear about what I'm saying here, right now we have reasonably few marginal tax rates. I don't remember how many offhand, but it's like five or something. I think we have it a out yes. at four hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. You should look at Alvin Graphic. Chung's. Yeah, yes. we've had a, we had amazing. Alvin work. Chang have, is an amazing. We have work on many, this many, us. many fewer than we had fifty years ago. And something that people propose doing occasionally, Bernie Sanders has proposed doing this, is begin creating gradients that are much higher in the income scale. So you can imagine if you're making more than a million dollars, your marginal tax rate is 47 percent. If you're making more than five million, income above that is taxed at 59 percent. If you're making more than 10 million, income above that is taxed at you know 72 percent. And and the point there is that these super productive CEOs are not going to drop out of the labor force, right? The, it's very, very, very unlikely that. Tim Cook would just stop being a CEO if making more than $10 million a year was very, very highly taxed. But because it's such an important thing, getting a good CEO, and because CEOs end up having so much power and they know the compensation committees and a million other things, you end up having this tremendous arms race. And this is, I think it's worth saying, one place where within the inequality conversation, I think your trade-offs are very sharp. Because one ingredient in the inequality conversation is sometimes you're talking about pots of money that could grow and sometimes you're talking about pots of money that are fixed. So there's a long-running argument about whether the rise in top 1% incomes is taking money away from, from the average right. worker. In a lot of ways, it may not be. It may be you know, globalization and other things that are hopefully making the, the overall size of the pie larger. But in this one way where CEOs have a lot more bargaining power than the average worker and a company only has so much money to spread around into compensation, there is a very sharp trade-off. Now, how much money the average worker will get if you pay the CEO less, you can, you can argue that out. Maybe it's worth it, maybe it's not. But it is a place where the increased incentive for CEOs to bargain aggressively for their compensation is probably very directly taking money out of workers' pockets without leading to much better CEOs overall. So our marginal tax rate is is low enough that I think we should we should try to make some make some money from the sponsors <laughs> um, and then and then talk about third parties. 
we love to learn new things here on The Weeds, and I bet if you listen to our show, you do too. And, and that's why we're really excited about the new The Great Courses Plus video learning service. It gives you unlimited access to this really enormous library of great courses lecture series in tons and tons of fascinating subjects, academic subjects like science and history, but also practical stuff like cooking. Uh, so I really love The Great Courses Plus, and they're giving our listeners an incredible opportunity right now. It's to watch one of their most popular courses, The Fundamentals of Photography, absolutely free. Fundamentals of Photography is taught by professional photographer and National Geographic fellow Joel Sartore. It's really cool. I, I've been watching it. He's got a lot of tips and tools about things like lighting, about framing, about perspective, and really about how a photographer thinks about the world and how you could think about the world, you know, as an amateur. I mean, he, he's a professional, but it's applicable to almost anything you do. See the world the way he sees it. So for just a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream this course. The Fundamentals of Photography, a $235 value, and hundreds of other courses for free. But this free offer is only available for a limited time, so hurry. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds, and check it out. So Michael Bloomberg is the head of Bloomberg Industries, which is a maker of financial terminals, has a big news business, a bunch of other things. He's also the mayor of New York for a number of years and was considered by many to be, be quite successful at that job. He has also perennially wanted to run for president. And Bloomberg is a guy who ran for mayor as a Republican, but clearly had a lot in common with Democrats, ended up endorsing Obama in 2012. I mean, he's kind of the very classic socially liberal, fiscally conservative Rockefeller Republican type. Now, he has never actually run for president, despite the fact that he clearly wants to spend a big chunk of his money becoming president, because it's really hard to run for president in a two-party system. But something that has begun coming out recently is he is looking into the idea that if the Republicans nominate someone like Donald Trump or Ted Cruz and the Democrats nominate someone like Bernie Sanders, Michael Bloomberg thinks that would create a lane for a sort of establishmentarian centrist who can self-finance to come in and win a third-party bid for the presidency. I don't really want to talk about Michael Bloomberg. What, sure. what I want to talk about is the bigger issue because I think that – one of the questions I get from people more than any other probably is, isn't the problem in American politics simply that we only have two parties and that what we really need is a third party or maybe many more parties than that? And so a couple of years ago, I really went and sort of went through the literature on third parties and talked to experts on it. And I think it, it, it turns out to be pretty interesting. So I'll just say, to, to put my conclusions on the table here, I do not think a third party would fix many of the salient problems in American politics, and I particularly don't think a Michael Bloomberg third party would. But here's why. What third parties are really good at doing is fixing the problem of there is an issue or an issue space that is being suppressed by the two parties. So a very good example of this, so he's running in one of the major parties, is Donald Trump. The two parties were clearly suppressing a certain level of nativist sentiment, right? People who wanted to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it, deport everyone, and put down a Muslim travel ban. And Donald Trump has realized that sort of the space of that third party was actually inside the Republican Party and has, using his own media recognizance and, and his own money, created a kind of third party insurgency within a major party. So he's done a really you know effective job of doing what third parties typically do, which is force the two main parties to pay more attention to issues that they weren't paying that much attention to. This is what Ross Perot did in the early 90s as well. 
he is given a lot of credit for Democrats paying much more attention to deficit reduction. Much of the contract for America, the Republicans around in 1994, was also very much out of the pro playbook. What third parties are not good at doing is solving problems of legislative gridlock and political polarization. And, and the reason is actually pretty obvious when you think about it. If the thing that is fucking with American politics right now is that one of the major parties tends to want to see the president fail. And so they use their blocking power in Congress to try to make the governing party into a failure. When you have a third party president, then both of the major parties have a reason to make the governing party fail. Both of the major parties don't want to cooperate with the president. And what's interesting here is that's true both on the party that really disagrees with Michael Bloomberg. Let's say the Republicans in this case would probably have a lot of issues with how he would govern. But they might on some way be able to electorally like him a little bit because he might make it easier for them to win future elections by shaving by shaving votes away from Democrats. On the other hand, the, the party closer to the third party, while in theory would have more reason to cooperate on policy, has less reason to cooperate because electorally the third party is more of a threat to them. So think Gore Nader here. So I think that's the, the broad lay of the land on, on third parties. They're very good for getting issues heard. But within the context of how American politics is structured, they actually worsen the problem of there being insufficient reasons for cooperation, a lot of reasons for, uh, for procedural sabotage, and a general kind of inability to resolve disputes. I think when a lot of people think about a third party, they say there's so much polarization, like we want someone in the middle is kind of the idea, like we want someone more sensible. And it doesn't seem like the third parties we gravitate towards, like, are those sort of figures. And like the example I'd give with Bloomberg is like, he does a lot of public health stuff that like, everyone hates, like he wants to <laughs> label calories, he wants to ban your big sodas. He, he has been like very much of like, a very like heavy handed regulator in a way that's very polarizing. So maybe you can talk about this a little bit in like the research you've done. But my, my sense from like watching third parties is they end up being in positions that aren't that much of like, bringing people together, which in like a conceptual sense, might be the idea sometimes. Right. I mean, I do think, well, this is like what, what Ezra was saying, that in the United States, I mean, it's, it's worth being clear what <laughs> yeah, we're absolutely. talking about. In the United States, third parties have traditionally shaped and influenced the country by picking up issues that are considered out of bounds by the two parties, right? And you could characterize it as sort of extreme. If Michael Bloomberg wanted to run on sort of a hard left platform, highlighting his views on guns, on environmental regulation and on public health regulation, he wouldn't win, obviously, but he might sort of reshape politics in some way or another by seeing if there was or wasn't a, a constituency for, for that kind of thing. But it's clear that what he wants to do is blend that stuff with his right of center views on financial regulation, taxes and other things and put himself forward as somehow. Uh, I'm not sure he's at right of center on taxes, just for the record. I well, think he wanted to let the Bush tax increase. I, I, I actually, he's I would say he's between where the Republicans yeah. and the Democrats are on taxes. His um, social position is of someone who is a moderate centrist. He doesn't want to be a guy who is launching an obviously doomed third party campaign to talk about issues that are outside the, the scope of the dialogue. He wants to run if he runs as someone who will win plausibly by somehow occupying the middle space in, in American politics. Uh, but it turns out that the, the middle, to the extent that exists, of people who are not well aligned with either political party 
is mostly composed of people who don't pay tons of attention to politics and have slightly jumbled, often extreme uh, opinions. So you have papers showing that Donald Trump is disproportionately liked by moderate Republicans. Because it turns out that what the average Republican moderate is, is not a deep acolyte of Olympia Snows. It's someone who is aligned emotionally with the Republican Party, but just isn't that deep into what conservative ideology means. And that's like Donald Trump. This paper, I just want to draw out this paper a little bit more yeah. for a second. This paper, which is by David Brookman and, and someone else, and I apologize for forgetting the other the other person's name, but we'll have it in show notes, is it shows that one thing that happens when pollsters look for for moderate voters is what they they end up asking people about a bunch of different issue positions and then they average them out. So you're moderate if you have a bunch of things on the left and a bunch of things on the right. The problem is that when you actually go in and look at their answers, what they have is a mishmash of very extreme positions. So a lot of moderates believe both that we should deport all illegal immigrants, right, all 12 million or 11 million of them, and simultaneously that pot should be completely legal. And you don't tend to find those positions in, in any one party. In fact, you don't tend to find those positions really in either party. But they, when you average them out, it's, oh, it's a left position and a right position. So this person is in the middle. And Donald Trump, like a moderate, just has a lot of strong positions that don't map onto one of the two political parties because he is not himself actually that sharply aligned with the political party, though he's running as a Republican. He's been all over the map in his in his life. And also as someone who doesn't frankly know that much about politics and policy and, and hasn't really cared to, I think is fairly clear. He has developed a lot of positions that make sense to him, but have been filtered out by parties that through their policy infrastructures or their constituent groups or whatever have decided this is not actually workable in practice, right? So a lot of Republicans emotionally agree with Donald Trump on immigration. The party, for reasons of its long-term health, its belief about what is feasible both economically and just, and just logistically, has decided you cannot deport every illegal, every unauthorized immigrant. What you have to do instead is self-deportation, as Mitt Romney said, or build a wall and try to prevent future people from coming in or whatever. But to go back to something Sarah said, because I think it's important, we have a continuous discussion about third parties. It is really weird because what we have every year and before it was, I mean, Bloomberg was talked about in 2012 too, but you had Unity 08, which was this idea that you were going to have a Republican and Democrat run together. There is a continuous alliance between the sort of technocratic media and sort of donor, political donor class that is always trying to create a third party that is this kind of socially liberal, fiscally conservative thing, which is a set of positions that have more share of political voice than they have actual political adherence. This is actually not that popular in issue space, but it is very popular among people who go on Morning Joe. And then you have this other kind of third party, which is more like what Ross Perot is. It's more like what Donald Trump was, what Pat Buchanan was. And, and it's something you see a lot in, in Europe, which is a mixture of social conservatism and economic populism. And that is really suppressed by the two parties for different reasons, because the Democratic Party is much more culturally liberal and because the Republican Party is much more economically conservative. And it's not something that is liked by the donor class, not something that is liked by the media, right? Because people in the media tend to be urbane and they really don't like the, the sort of nativism of a Trumpish thing. And so that kind of party, which has much less share of voice than it has a potential share of vote, 
there's a lot of opportunity there, but it doesn't get much attention. And it's not the thing that people are you know, making noise about every year. But I think when we get a third party, if we get a third party, that is what it will look like for it to be successful. What I think is, is interesting about this stuff, though, is how president-focused it tends to be. So one thing that Michael Bloomberg has very strongly in common with Donald Trump, even though their issue positions are different, is that Michael Bloomberg's company is called Bloomberg Inc. The main <laughs> product that Bloomberg Inc. sells is a Bloomberg terminal. The other thing it produces is Bloomberg News, Bloomberg TV. You know, he, he likes naming things. <laughs> and so it's clear that, like, one of his main interests in a third-party presidential campaign is that, like, he personally, Michael Bloomberg, <laughs> would become president of the United States. He's not interested in donating that money to a super PAC that would allow Cory Booker to run an independent bid with those same positions. Can I say one thing for Bloomberg here? He does have a super PAC that gives money to candidates from two political parties who support gun control. Yes, yes. No, no, absolutely. But I mean, it's not the same level of commitment as he has to his own campaigns. And as mayor of New York, he did not found a Michael Bloomberg party. He did not recruit, even under the name Michael Bloomberg, he didn't recruit city council members into his political party. And then having built that city council Bloomberg coalition, run state assembly candidates, put forward someone for district attorney. When he decided that the two terms he was allowed under the city charter weren't enough to shape his vision for (laughs) New York, he spent a lot of money on changing the charter so that he personally could get a third term. I'm being a little bit disparaging here, but I want to say that one reason I find Michael Bloomberg's uh, ego focus on this a little disappointing is that I personally am very sympathetic to Michael Bloomberg's political views, and I would like to see Michael Bloomberg advance those political views in a more systematic and efficacious kind of way, which ultimately, especially if you want to talk about third-party politics, means you have to have an actual political party of some kind, not just you. But you you saw with Bloomberg what you saw with Ross Perot, what you saw on the state level with with Jesse Ventura, what you saw during Angus King, who is now sort of admitting that he's a Democrat, or Bernie Sanders, who has now fully admitted that he's a Democrat, are these kind of one-man parties, right? So, like, Vermont is a great place for a political party that is more left-wing than the Democratic Party. That's why Bernie Sanders got elected mayor of Burlington. That's how he got elected to the House of Representatives. But then he swiftly reaches an accommodation with the National Democratic Party. They don't run candidates against him. He sits in their caucus, which is fine. I mean, that, that seems like a sensible arrangement. But he doesn't do any more party work in Vermont, right? There's no Socialist Party of Vermont governor elected. There's no Socialist Party of Vermont people in in the state legislature. There's just one guy who chooses to put an I next to his name rather than a D. Um, Angus King had a a centrist party in in Maine, although he's drifted to the left. But again, he didn't create a real party. When Joe Lieberman lost the Democratic primary but decided to stay in the game, I think he literally named the party Connecticut for Lieberman or something. (laughs) Certainly in the Northeastern United States, right? There is interest in a party that is more left-wing than the Democrats, sort of the Bernie Sanders party. And there's interest in a party that is between where the Democrats and the Republicans are. And since that whole region is just to the left politically of the United States of America, it would kind of make sense to have elections that are like between Bernie Sanders and Joe Lieberman. 
But to get there, you would have to form institutions that have multiple members, including people running for unglamorous offices and where they have like dull meetings where they, they work <laughs> right. things but out. But that's like where the action happens. This is something we talked about in the weeds before. But like if you want to show people what your third party is about, going into the presidency, you're probably just not going to get very far. But like if you take over the Vermont legislature, like maybe you make another pass at single payer and like really decide that's the thing you maybe that's not the best mission to take on right now. But you like that's the place where you're going to like show off what your agenda is about. And but it's so much less exciting to like run for Vermont District 9 state legislator. One question I want to put to both of you guys, I think you know this literature a little bit better than I do. I think a lot of people look at European countries and say like, well, they've like they've done it. They have more parties than we do. I mean, like, Matt, you've written a lot about this. Like, how do you think about the structure of their of their governing systems with many parties in, in well, so there's, the there's an US. old view on this and I think a, a new view. The, the, oh. old, the old view uh, on the U.S. versus Europe on, on third parties is that the U.S. had a first-past-the-post electoral system, which is to say if you get more votes than the other guy, you win the election, uh, whereas most European countries had more proportional election systems. So if you got 15 percent of the vote, you might get 15 percent of the seats. And so that was why Europe had more parties. So people used to think that that it lined up really well. But then tons of people in the United Kingdom started voting for various third parties of different kinds. There's UK Independence Party on the kind of nationalist populist side. Uh, there's Liberal Democrats on the centrist side. There's a Scottish Independence Party. And then you started seeing similar dynamic in Canada. The far left party uh, gained adherence recently. There was a, a big fad for uh, voting for Quebec separatists for a while. A Green Party at one point got 10% of the votes and won no seats in parliament. Parliament because they don't have a proportional system. So people started coming around. The, the kind of new opinion about this is that the reason we don't have multiple parties in the United States is that the U.S. primary system is really, really open and flexible. And so if you're Donald Trump and you want to propose a different kind of issue coalition, it's just easier to get in the Republican primary and go on television and start talking about stuff than to go through all the legwork of creating a new political party, that the hassle basically isn't worth it, that if Michael Bloomberg really, really, really wants to run for president, what he should do is take a good look at things and see that he's basically a kind of Democrat and run in the Democratic primary. And so that in the U.S., you have things like the Tea Party surge, right, where there's a clearly a lot of conflict, at least perceived differences between people on, on different sides of this. But they don't form a Tea Party and run third party bids. They form sort of loose knit organizations. They infiltrate party organs. They go kind of run. Whereas most foreign countries have traditionally had more centralized, more hierarchical party systems. And you see some real evidence of this, that the UK Labour Party recently changed its rules for how they were picking its leader to a more American-style system where people could just say, oh, yeah, I like Labour. I'm going I'm to vote for, for a leadership candidate. Uh, and what happened was like a real outsider, long-shot guy, Jeremy Corbyn, with a very different policy view from where Labour had been. He came in and he signed up a bunch of new people. He turned them out to vote and he won. Uh, and so that's to say that the UK is looks like it's maybe becoming a place that's more like the United States, where if you want to represent a sort of outsider viewpoint, you can do it by going inside one of the parties and, and trying to take it over. So there's no real point in forming extra parties. So just another way of putting this and the way, the way I like to think about this is that we do not actually have a 
two-party system in the way people think about that. And other places don't have a multi-party system in quite the way people think about that. That if you, if you look at, say, the UK a couple of years ago, they had a governing party that was a coalition between the, the Tories and the Liberals. And that party, you know, it, it, it had a lot of internal disagreements in it, but it, but it ultimately for a period of time kind of functioned as a kind of a unified governing force, even though, you know, it had to deal with a lot of internal disagreement about what it meant to govern and what the right options were. That is actually also how American politics works, that it can be a little bit of a conceptual mistake to think of there as being a Republican Party and a Democratic Party. Although party polarization is strong, so I do think that there's a lot of truth to that view. These parties include a pretty broad range of players within them. And if you talk to Republicans on the Hill, say, they will routinely talk about there being a 100 Republicans who are kind of conservative, but sort of mainstream, and then 50 who are Tea Party and really confrontational, and then the remainder is being a little bit more moderate, right? And they will talk about the need to form coalitions between these different parts of their own party. And back when, say, Obamacare was passing, it was really common to hear people talk about how Obama was having to cooperate with Ben Nelson and Joe Lieberman and these people who were much, much, much more moderate than, say, a Bernie Sanders or a Sheldon Whitehouse. And that those people, like they almost, it almost wasn't like they were in the same party at all. Their, their beliefs are so different. Now, ultimately, they figure out their disagreements and they vote up or down, which is also ultimately what happens in, in other party systems. But, you know, I don't think people tend to give the Democratic and Republican parties credit for the diversity of opinions they actually end up including. But so here is where I do think it winds up making a difference in practice, which is that in a highly multi-party system where it's formally multi-party, one thing that often happens is that the players who are near the median team up and control the system. So in, in Germany, you have a left of center and a right of center party governing together while the parties on the left and the right are sort of locked out. Uh, the Netherlands also has a, a centrist coalition of that sort. And, you know, those kind of coalitions, they come and go in, in European parliamentary systems, but they do definitely come sometimes. The U.S., you have centrally positioned ideological players, but because they are formally on the same team as the people on the far side and they're institutionally connected to them, the tendency is for governance to come. I mean, governance doesn't come from the far, far extremes, but it comes from well off center. And if we get different splitting results, it'll be because a Democratic president bargains with a Republican House, not because moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans control the political system. Mm -hmm. Like you could have imagined, right? There was this time, I guess it was 2001, when Jim Jeffords switched parties and that switched the control of the Senate. You From could Republican to Democrat. Right. There were many more sort of moderate people in the Senate at that time. You could have imagined like a dozen of them, some Republicans, some Democrats, basically Republicans from the Northeast and Democrats from the South, all ganging up together and saying, you know what, we're running the show now. We're going to chair all the committees. We're going to control the floor agenda. But they don't do that because the mechanisms of cooperation like that don't exist. Or they try to do that. Like, remember during Obamacare, there are the various, like, gangs of mm -hmm. differing numbers yep. who would form and then, right. like, ultimately just fail. Because they, right. But I mean, like, they wouldn't get it done. No. You know, and it's because the institutions are different, I think, right? I mean, if. Max Baucus and, and other moderate Democrats had been in a formally separate 
political party and then the same thing with the moderate Republicans. Their chances of cooperating successfully across those party lines, I think, would have been higher. It's a little hard to know. I mean, the, the American system has a lot of institutional differences from Germany. So to single out one of them and say, like, aha, this is why Germany has centrist governing coalitions that America doesn't, I think you're, you're not going to find. But we develop centrist policymaking coalitions when we do by branch versus branch conflict, much more than sort of member to member cooperation. And one way we develop revenue here on The Weeds is by reading the occasional word from our sponsors. Indeed. This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Squarespace. Uh, I remember I, I used to have a, a website, MatthewGlacius.com, that I sort of built by hand uh, in the old days of the internet. And it was pretty good. I, I liked it. But it, it was really hard work. And then one day... My whole domain got sort of stolen by Russian spam scam artists, and they, they told me I would have to pay them $100,000 to, to get it back. And it, it turned out that a, a much cheaper and easier solution was to go to Squarespace. I, I did it. It's great. Mostly it was just easy, and it made me feel like an idiot for all the hard work I used to put into websites. You know, so you could do it yourself. The sites look professionally designed. Uh, you don't need to know any coding. If you do know how to do a little coding, you can put it in there. It's super intuitive. You know, what you see is what you get. You click here, you click there, you drag this. And if you sign up for a full year, you will even get a free domain of your own. So, uh, you know, that's a, a great option. You can start your free trial site today at squarespace.com. If you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use offer code WEEDS to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. So we are into the last section of the weeds, <laughs> our standard research paper of the week. You, um, see, you seem thrilled. I, no, I am. It's a good paper. I am thrilled because it's another NBER paper, and I hear we do have some NBER listeners who like our um, live every day like it's NBER day, National Bureau of Economic Research, it's obviously. Exciting. So there's exciting this, way to live. Yeah. So there's this great paper that they put out on education policy, which is a subject we've gotten some requests for. We haven't talked about as much, but, you know, we'll keep doing those. And it looked at culturally relevant courses in high school. Basically, this idea that there's an idea in education policy, particularly in K through 12, about trying to kind of reach kids where they are and provide classes that are looking at different ethnic histories, looking at, you know, perhaps like the civil rights movement, different things that might speak more specifically to the backgrounds that different kids come from. So the study that comes out of San Francisco, where they offered an ethnic studies class to some students, but not others, we can get into the methodology a, bit, a little bit later. And what they find is actually like a shockingly large effect. They find that GPAs go up for the kids who get the ethnic studies curriculum 1.4 points over the kids who don't. And what's really driving that is just kids go to school a lot more, that their attendance goes up a lot because presumably this course is just more interesting than the other classes that they're taking, gives them a reason to go to school and you know, pushes them to get better GPAs than in their math classes or their English classes is kind of the working theory on this. This is kind of one of the first papers to look at this. It's definitely one of those ones that falls into the more research needed category. But it's an initial suggestion that some of these ethnic studies courses might actually be an interesting lever to pull in, you know, trying to bring more equality to the education system and get some kids who might not be going to school to actually 
want to turn up. Yeah, I thought this paper was really interesting. I mean, there's often debates about ethnic studies classes that I think tend to be about the course itself and not about, okay, what what is maybe broader purposes it can play. So one thing the paper discusses at some length, which I thought was something worth thinking very hard about, is this idea of stereotype threat. So there is a lot of research showing that if you give kids a test and before you have them take the test, you ask them to write down their ethnicity or you have them write down their gender, you'll often find people from ethnicities or genders that are maybe stereotyped as not being as good at that subject doing much, much worse simply if they're cued to think about themselves in that context before. So, I mean, there are very famous studies and really depressing, horrifying studies about if you have young girls before they take a math test just write down that they're girls. It will really change the results. So young African-American boys write that down. It'll really change their results. If kids feel that they are going to confirm, confirm negative stereotypes about themselves, they get paralyzed. They become afraid to do their work. They second-guess themselves more often, and, and it really hurts their performance. And one argument this paper makes is that something ethnic studies courses end up doing is acting as a protective against stereotype threat, that it resituates that question and helps people see their own heritage and their own way of learning and their own approach and their sort of role in the world more positively. And so then that in this sort of broader, more opaque way stereotype threat ends up sort of hurting kids during school it releases them from that pressure. It changes the, the way the world sees them and as such allows them to operate in school more effectively. Uh, and, and that way I thought it was really profound. I just had not, you know, I'd never seen research on this topic. And the research around stereotype threat is so overwhelming and so disturbing. And I never really seen good research on how you combat it. And, and, and this, seemed really, this seemed really promising. And, you know, I mean... I the reason that that I think this is this is worth talking about. I mean, it's it's just one paper. The the methodology here, what, what they do is it's called a, a regression discontinuity study. Basically, they there was a, a GPA threshold for people who got assigned down to this eighth grade class, even though they were at the age for ninth graders. And the way you tend to set these is it was like a hard GPA cutoff, so they can look at people who were just above and just just below. So that's a good way to study this, given that there wasn't random assignment available. But it's not the greatest methodologically most powerful way to look at it. So I wouldn't necessarily take this to the bank and like swear right. that implementing mm -hmm. ethnic studies classes in every American eighth grade class will produce this enormous improvement in minority kids achievement. But it's certainly suggestive. We, we should look at it more. We should experiment more with these courses. But I also think it's an important corrective to a, a style of thinking that I think I've started to see a ton of in the media and that is incredibly pernicious. And it's that a lot of people have gotten the idea that there is a phenomenon called political correctness that is running out of control in America and especially in the education system. And because they are so sure that there's this out of control political correctness in the education system, anytime they hear something a little funny sounding or unfamiliar relating to ethnic minority groups and educational change, there's this like point and laugh impulse. Right. And what you're seeing here is that there is some evidence, at least, that that can be incredibly harmful, right? That like it might sound to you like 
if it was good enough for me, it's good enough for them. Like, what do you need ethnic studies in eighth grade for? And these like weirdo books, like, why don't they just read the books we read when I was in school? And like one reason they maybe shouldn't just read the books that they read when you were in school is it includes a 20% increase in school attendance, a 1.4% increase in, in GPA, right? And this 1. is 1.4 point increase point, in GPA. Yes. And these are big changes. And they're also they're changes that you could do in a much more feasible way than other kinds of big structural policy ideas that you hear about, like equalizing school funding across the entire United States. It kind of sounds like a good idea, but also the lift there is enormous compared to tweak what the eighth grade reading curriculum is about. <laughs> right. Um, you, you know, and I think uh, an example of this for historically that, that I'm familiar with is that there was research done in the 1980s, and it showed that, as I think people know intuitively, the vernacular English that African Americans tend to use, particularly working class African Americans is different from the standard American English. And that they started labeling this African-American vernacular English. And there were studies showing that if in an educational context, if instead of constantly scolding black kids for talking in the way that is typical of working class African-Americans in the United States, you actually gave them written material in which people spoke in African-American vernacular English, that they found this reading much more engaging. And they learned the stuff about reading that's important, which is not how do you conjugate the verb to be in different contexts, but it's like, what do letters mean? And how do they relate to sounds? And how do you decode whole sentences and paragraphs? And there were big educational gains from this. And then a public school board, I think, in Oakland decided that it wanted to take this research that had been done at a University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and they wanted to really implement it in their majority black school curriculum. Somehow the term Ebonics got labeled into this instead of African-American vernacular English. And there was this wave of like national outrage and like it was ridiculous. And now schools are going to be teaching kids to speak wrong. And everyone knows the whole point of school is to teach you to talk like white people, you know, and like <laughs> uh, so, you know, it, it just it vanished in like a, a wave of outrage about this run amok political correctness. But the research base is still there. It's still very clear. I think it's entirely obvious, too, right? If you imagine any kind of regional accent, nobody would ever suggest that you should go into a southern school and then any time a kid there says y'all, start correcting him and say, like, that's wrong. You don't even know English. Right? Like, it would be really demoralizing. That's just, that is what southern people say in a second person plural context. And, like, it's fine. And it's entirely appropriate and supported that kids reading might feature characters who speak the way people in their neighborhood and their community speak. And the ethnic studies, uh, th this study from, from San Francisco is looking at a different aspect of this, but it's the same basic idea that like school can be a bummer and you have to make it something that people feel is for people like them. And if all of the material is about people who are not like you, then you're going to feel like you don't belong and you're maybe going to not show up. And that's really, really harmful. Yeah. One of the questions I have, if there's other education researchers out here looking at this, is like how much the actual curriculum matters. There's a bit of a description in the study about what they did in San Francisco and one thing I'm curious about is how much like what you're actually talking about in the classes. Another is like how easy or difficult it is to pull this off. Like when I think of maybe not at a high school level, but a more elementary level, you know, I'm involved with a reading nonprofit here in D.C. And like one of the challenges we always run into is just like literally finding books with characters who look like the kids we tutor who are mostly 
African-American or like first generation Latino kids, like it is a constant challenge to find those. And something that I think like leads up to, you know, some of this like stereotype threat, you know, that kids are getting to all the way in high school is they spend all of their elementary years reading about like fun kids going on adventures who like definitely do not look like them. I'm sure this class can like interfere on some levels and push back against it. But I think there's a lot of levels, you know, we're not talking about here that'd be interesting to look at at even younger um, kids on when they see characters like them. Like, how do you how do you integrate this throughout a school system? It seems like a bigger lift than, you know, the smaller lift of like doing one high school class period curriculum on this. To make a broad point related to the political correctness discussion and, and what you're saying about representation, Sarah, I, I think a lot about something related to this just as the editor of Vox, because a conversation that our site has definitely been, you know, wrapped up in and part of and, and has been trying to navigate itself is this conversation over it isn't just political correctness. And we try to offer a, a theory here, uh, which I'm not 100 percent sure is right, but I think is right. One thing that happened when we moved into digital publishing, and particularly when social media made it very easy for people to share and generate um, very large audiences for material that resonated with them, is all of a sudden there was an incredibly sharp rise in content that keyed into people's core identities in some way, content that keyed into their gender identity, their ethnic identity, their sexual identity, um, et cetera, et cetera, their political identity, obviously. And BuzzFeed has been a, a very big beneficiary of this, but a lot of sites have been. And so I think if you're, a, if you're a pundit and you're sort of looking around at the media, all of a sudden you just see a ton more coverage of things like why aren't there more female or minority superheroes in Marvel movies? And one response I think a lot of people have to that is, who the fuck cares? Every time you see people write about this, is you see people then say, like, we have crazy levels of inequality. The world is cooking and you're arguing about whether or not Hulk is going to be Asian. Like, what is wrong with you? And then I think there's another way of looking at this. And, and this is my view on it. But I think it's also a lot of people's view is we had for a very long time institutions, you know, publications are, are one, but schools are another, and, and there are many others that were really dominated in terms of their decision-making by white men. And in addition to being dominated in their decision-making by white men, there was very little information actually flowing up and down about what the, the constituencies wanted. Now, not none, and obviously um, in schools you have, you know, PTAs and other things, but, but uh, so to, to narrow it to publishing, there's not that much information about what people were actually reading. And then we get all this information, and all of a sudden it becomes really clear that even if you, white male political pundit, don't really care about representation in superheroes, for some reason a lot of people who are not represented do. And ethnic studies on campuses are another thing like this. The, the point and laugh thing is, you know, for some reason this is really important to the African-American Student Union and you don't understand why it's important at all. And one reaction you might have to that is to say, well, it's probably not important. Otherwise, I would think it's important. And another reaction is to say this is really valuable information. The fact that people are not represented here feel that an ethnic studies program would be such a big deal on their college campus and, and be so good for them that they're willing to fight for it and occupy offices and whatever. Or the fact that people care so much about representation and culture and, 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 and in other places that they're going to share all this and it's going to go crazily viral. That That's actually really good information. And it suggests to me it, it was certainly like a wake-up call, someone who, who assigns pieces and, and edits them, that I had systematically underrated 
how important these questions were to people. And I just think that the, this is like a real divide right now in commentary, right, between people who who look at this stuff and say, that looks strange to me. I don't think it's important and I'm right. And people who said, I didn't think that's important and clearly the information here shows I was wrong, that it was incredibly important and we should take seriously that the folks from the communities that, that are most affected here disagree so sharply. And I don't think that we've had a really good way of having a conversation about this because it has happened so fast in a lot of places. And I don't think people have been very systematic in thinking about why it's happening or what's going on. There's so much attention on specific instances of it happening and particularly in specific, particularly weird instances of it happening. And those tend to dominate the conversation. But I think if you step back and look at the trend, there's like something really profound here. And, and, and I think this went to it, right? I did not have a strong view on on ethnic studies, you know, before reading this paper. And I definitely had not thought very much about it in context of the broader curriculum and how it might affect people's performance outside of that class, right? I had always thought of it in terms of, well, it seems to me that learning about Latino history is a valuable thing. So we offer a lot of courses. Why not offer that one? But I think this is like another reason to like stop and, and check your assumptions a little bit and say, okay, actually, there's something deeper going on here too. The people arguing for this stuff understood and sensed. And, you know, I think I didn't and, and maybe a lot of people right. didn't. And it kind of, I don't know, it makes sense then when you go back from that perspective and think like, American history is interesting because, like, you grew up in the United States and, like, you're learning about these things that, you know, are part of your heritage. Like, why would the other not exist? And, like, why would, like, like the narratives about where, you know, the majority of Americans came from are interesting to those people. The books that are about, you know, people growing up in those situations are inherently interesting because of the shared experience. And then it kind of seems like, well, why wouldn't that be true of everyone else who's like attending our public school systems right now? Yeah. And I mean, something that's interesting about the sort of web publishing analogy, right, is that obviously the hope is, you know, if you if you do more coverage that's like of niche community interest to LGBT readers is that they're not going to just read your LGBT coverage, but they're going to become readers of your publication. Right. They're going to think of it as a place that cares about people like them and that cares about things that they care about. And they, of course, care about things other than their sexual identity. It's just that's one of the things that they care about. And similarly with the school system, right? Like math is important. And math just does not have a heavy racial or ethnic connection. And that's fine. And that's just how it is. But it's if your other stuff is all very, very, very heavily coded white, it may make people feel that school is not for them. And then they're not in the math class. Whereas if you have an ethnic studies class, some other things that engage people and bring them in, then once you're in school, there's lots of things to learn about in school. But as if you're turned off from the whole process by a sense that it's not for you, that the people running the institution don't care about you, or that people like you aren't supposed to care about school, then you don't learn the algebra, right? And like, that's where the sort of the biggest harm come in and where the biggest potential gains are. So we hope that you are not turned off by any part of the weeds and that you feel able to participate in all parts of our discussion. And one way you can participate in our discussion is by emailing us at weeds at vox.com. And one way you can tell other people the weeds is for them is by going to iTunes and, and giving us a, a rating. Yes, you should rate, you should review, you should subscribe. You can also, <laughs> frankly, beyond reviewing, though, you could just email your friends, share on Facebook. You can recommend the weeds to other people any way you like. I want to make sure we're an ecumenical about this. It's been another uh, lovely episode of The Weeds. Thanks for listening, and, and thanks to our producer, uh, AC Valdez, and to uh, the, the empty chair uh, here with us in, in D.C. 